Hello and welcome to episode 188 of What Most People Think. And well, 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 little Rishi got his little deal, hasn't he? The Windsor Framework. The Windsor Framework. Sounds like a, sounds like a shitty sequel to The Thomas Crown Affair, doesn't it? Pierce Brosnan, I'm in the wrong film. Um, so yeah, little Rishi got his little deal. And this is what most people think. This is a topical comedy show weekly that's willing to say, well done to the PM. Well, good old Rishi. Slap him on his back. Not too hard, because he's only little. Um, but yeah, that, I know, I know, I'm just being annoying to, to lefties and Remainers. I understand that uh, I understand that they might be triggered by this. And, and obviously, the line that the government have been selling, saying, well, look, they're in both the single market and the British single market. Um, I can understand why that's problematic for them. But I will say this. They did say a deal couldn't be done. And by most people's estimations, and in terms of what's available, uh, this is a pretty decent deal. So we'll be talking about that. But it's a guest episode this week. We've got Darren McGarvey on the show, who is a Scottish rapper. And to older listeners, that is a thing. That is a thing. He's also a, a, a writer and sort of social commenter, activist. You know, there's a lot of things that he does. And he's, he's had two books out. Uh, what a poverty safari and the social distance between us, which are really interesting comments on on kind of class and the relationship with politics. And 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 I thought you know we've had a lot of comedians on the show of late. We haven't had like a sort of social commenter on for a while. And the thing with Darren is a lot of his views are what you call hard left, but they're kind of like sort of militant ideas, but communicated without any militancy. So I think just in terms of even being uh, you know somebody who loves coherent ideas or, or words that are communicated beautifully this interview is really you know one to listen to at times you know quite a serious chat but also just just so much uh, to take away from it and also it was interesting at the end that me and Darren both share uh, similar views on how we feel when going to expensive hotels um the main talking point from last week's episode so do remember the the boys gone wild episode some of you I know some of you don't tend to listen to the solo ones but you might have seen that title and thought uh where's one of these fucking Norcott going off on his own for 40 minutes but it looks like an hour this week no they were actually a comedy duo of fine young men who are producing comedy content and they are sort of in their mid-20s and it was it was again it was an interesting chat because it was the first chat I've had across a couple of generations and it was really interesting to find you know lads from their generation that were sort of into stoicism and were sort of against some of the namby-pamby nature of what's seen to characterise Gen Z so do go back and have a listen to that one uh, Domain Talking Point the main talking point, we're talking about sitcoms from the last 10 years that have done really well. David concurs that Fleabag was a contender. Uh, Dairy Girls, of course, which had 3 million views. That's a very fair point. And it was the most watched show in Narnarn since modern records began and since become a Netflix smash. Yeah, I mean, I watched the first series that quite enjoyed it, but then I kind of lost lost track of it. So maybe I need to get back on that. And we we're talking about when I do my advertising for the tour, I get, I'll always get a lot of people kind of coming up going, uh, Glasgow doesn't want you, you tawdry shite. <laughs> or, or, or Newcastle as well. That's been the one this week going, uh, what, a fucking Tory working? The one, one was he said, or oh, a fucking Tory, didn't bother coming to Newcastle, lad. And do you know how much self-restraint I have to take to not say, last three shows sold out, mate. Um, 
but as David points out, even if it was just based on the idea that the uh, the well, as anyone that's come to my shows knows is untrue, is that the only people that come and see me are people that agree with me or that vote Tory all the time, which I don't even do these days. Um, he says uh, there are some Tories no- knocking about in Glasgow, even in Glasgow Central. Uh, 3,698 residents voted Conservative in the 2019 general election. I only need 10% of that. And across the Westminster constituencies in Glasgow, the Conservatives received 9 to 15% of the vote share. Nah, they didn't. We didn't have any fucking Tory shit running around Glasgow, you bastard. I'm sort of guaranteeing with shit accents like that that nobody's going to come to the show in Glasgow. Uh, new patrons. Uh, just a couple this week. Uh, well, there's the heroic Deborah Page, who Patreons seem to just not want her money. I don't know. What, what is it, look, uh, Deborah? Have you... Is it dirty money? Is that what it is, Deborah? You trying? You trying to trying to launder money through the Patreon system? I don't know how that would happen, but uh, Deborah's been uh, continually having to reset up her account, uh, and so I appreciate that. And then Ian Villalard, Ian Villalard, Ian Villa. What is that a nickname or a surname? Like like you're an Aston Villa fan and you're a big lad. Is that what it is? Ian Villalard. Ian Villalard, you need to get in contact with me, Ian. I need context for what that name actually means. Okay, uh, we're going to go on quickly here because I want to do a bit of politics before we get uh, into the chat with Darren. Uh, The thank you is to All Day Drinking. On Sunday, I went to the League Cup final with with Bobby Kuchler, uh, Catherine Ryan's other half, and uh, we met at the German gymnasium, which is going to sound poncy. It is a bit poncy. It's at King's Cross, but they do like... You know how North sort of Germans, they understand the nature of the, the simple relationship between meat and lager. <laughs> they do it well. And, and, and some of the food there is really expensive, but if you keep, it's at King's Cross. But if you keep it simple, uh, just go for the sausages. Uh, it, it was great. But they do, the problem is they do the Steiners, which are these two pint things. So you can kind of come out of there going, I've only had two beers. And then you think, no, I'm four pints in. I'm four points in, so I was pretty fucking hammered on the way to Wembley. Uh, we were in um, we we're in the United end. I mean, we were neutral on the day. But one thing I will say about United fans that I found interesting is the amount that they amount of time they spend singing about past players. I mean, you know, they're just just going way back. There was songs about Diego Forlan who scored a couple of goals against Liverpool or something. They're singing about all sorts of past players, and I sort of thought, how far does this go? Is there going to be a song about Jesper Olsen, Mickey Phelan? Yeah, remember Mickey Phelan? I always remember once um, Ron Atkinson was co-commentating for ITV on the big match or the big game or one of these other creative titles that ITV gave it when they had the football rights. And they said uh, to him, who's your man of the match, Ron? And by the way, this story doesn't end with Ron Atkinson saying something racist, which can often happen when Ron's in the booth. Uh, They said, who's your man of the match, Ron? He said, "Uh, Mickey Phelan. Yeah, Mickey Phelan, great game. said, "Uh, he only come on 15 minutes ago, Ron. (laughs) So at this point, he'd only been on the pitch. Like... uh, you know, he hadn't even he hadn't even completed a full game. Yeah, but uh, no, Mickey Phelan for me all day long, which I took meaning that he was mates with Mickey Phelan. Uh, the fuck you is to a Guardian article. The article is about uh, why are men struggling to get into relationships, and the and the title was why have young men fallen out of love with romantic relationships, and it was from a section called the Week in Patriarchy. Now. Just have a little guess here. Little play, play along at home, as Richard Osman would say. In an article from a section called The Week in Patriarchy, which is asking why young men have fallen out of love with romantic relationships, just have a little guess as to who they blame. No, no. Is it the patriarchy? Yes. God, you're good. Yeah, it's the patriarchy. So essentially, it's men's fault, isn't it? 
And that's why it seems to work in modern analysis of men's issues and certainly issues around relationships and men getting into relationships is that if women have a problem in relationships, it's men's fault. And if men have a problem with relationships, it's also men's fault. Do you see, do you see a little pan here? It's always got to be men's fault. And maybe, I don't know, like if, if there's a whole generation of young men that are less likely to even seek romantic relationships... I'd say that might be a comment on what they feel relationships offer now. And whether or not, because we know that men generally have a greater propensity towards solitude, they might not, it might not be healthy for them, but they certainly seem more willing to accept it. Maybe say, if you had the same thing the other way around, right? If it said, why are almost no young women looking to get married now? What would be the way that would go? Words, because men, you know, it'd be, well, they're more financially independent. They would turn it into a positive. But somehow... Whenever there's a problem with men, it's just men's fault, isn't it? It's just a way of filing it away. It's like it's like the equivalent of man flu. You're making it up. It's your fault. Fucking go off and die somewhere else. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I was just getting a bit of a bit of a meninist head on there. But um, I, I mean, just whatever you think about the point that I've just made about relationships, can we all just celebrate the fact the Guardian being peak Guardian and having a section called the Week in Patriarchy? Okay, before we get into a chat with Darren McGarvey, let's have a catch up on the big political news, which is the emergence of a deal with Rishi Sunak and the EU, the Windsor Framework. Okay, so yeah, it looks like, uh, I mean, I'm recording this on Tuesday, the 28th of February at lunchtime, but it looks like British sausages, sausages can once again be sold in Northern sausages. I mean, it. the problem with centering on that, there was a tweet from Rishi Sunak, which had loads of sausages on the graphic, is it does highlight the fact that maybe some people might not have been aware of is the fact that for a, a time they weren't allowed to be sold, which which is it's quite a strange state of affairs. Um, so I was wondering, why are they highlighting it? But then on the other hand, people from uh, Northern Ireland, maybe they just love a fry-up. They fucking love a fry-up. You know, that was the big issue. We just, we've just missed that. We're not tuned in to boots on the ground politics in Northern Ireland in quite the same way. And it, it turns out there's going to be red and green lanes and stuff will just, you know, there'll be more frictionless trade. And the, the paperwork to get your pets out of the country is going to be simplified as well. And I just thought, was this a big issue, was it? There's loads of Northern Irish people going, hey, I want to take my fucking cockapoo to Manchester. And that's become near on impossible to do. I, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't think that this was that big a deal. Um, but that's going to be easier now. Now, there's been two main sort of spins on this. You know, like, let's be honest, the, the UK and the EU, the UK getting a good deal out of the EU and improving on what was already there is always going to piss some people off, right? The, the, the same people that say, well, we need, we, they need to sort it out. When they do sort it out, they can't just accept that it's a positive um, development. They have to then find something else to be angry about. So they're... Their angle is, is, well, this just proves that you didn't get Brexit done, which is, is sort of a fair point, but also code for, fuck, I didn't expect this. <laughs> so I need a different angle. I mean, when, when we got the deal with the EU in, what, 2020, was it? Was that there was a strong sense that the Northern Ireland Protocol was going to have to change. And at the time, you know, it's probably Boris's fault for giving it the oven ready and any other fucking metaphor he had that week. But it sort of, we sort of knew that it was imperfect. It quite clearly with the DUP's reaction, it wasn't going to be allowed to stand. But but one of the strange things about the real hardcore Romaniacs is they sort of invest the EU with the quality of intransigence. 
It's an odd thing, isn't it? They sort of take pleasure. Go, yeah, you never fucking budge and deal with it, you pricks. Yeah. And you go, well, that's not, to me, a selling point for the EU. Is that, I mean, they did budge, didn't they? They reopened the withdrawal agreement after people said, well, they'll never reopen. It's a rules-based organisation. It's a rules-based, as they were fapping themselves to death over that phrase. Yeah, it's a fucking, tell me again how rules-based this organisation is. They're sort of getting off on it. I mean, what, what, why have the EU done it? Because it does seem to be an undeniably much better deal than what existed before. Um, I think, well, there was recent polling, we discussed this in the Neil Delamere episode, that if there was a border poll, uh, it would, you know, it, reunification wouldn't happen yet, right? Not based on the terms set out in the Good Friday Agreement. And I suppose the EU have also had talks where they've realised that the, finally, the DUP aren't fucking about, okay? <laughs> Maybe they've just had chats, just people, you know, with the Americans and, you know, the British and the Irish governments and Northern Ireland. It's, uh, yeah, when these guys say stuff, they, they're known for digging in, all right? They're known, this isn't just a negotiating position. That's the DUP, you know. Some of these people are direct descendants of Ulster sales, no. Um, Jesus, am I am I allowed to do that accent? Well, I did it. Um, and maybe the EU initially felt that they had to do a bit of a punishment beating, right, when we left the EU. Um, we're not going to make it fucking easy. And the point's made now, isn't it? If you want to if you want to leave the EU, it's going to be fucking hard. I think that they made that point. I think other European countries will be aware of that now. So point made. Sunak is a bit more like them, isn't he? He's, he's a bit technocratic. You get, you get the sense that he eats similar... He eats the same sort of breakfast as they do, right? <laughs> you know, like the kind of like when they, when they sat down, he had kind of like some some ham and cheese and a croissant, and it was like, oh snap! And and there's a strange period we're we're sort of entering into, whereby one of the potential net effects, the negative net effects of Brexit happening, was we were told again by, and I'm not saying it's all Remainers, but there's a certain kind that was sort of going, well, Scotland's going to leave the UK and Ireland's going to be reunified, and they, you know, they were sort of going, yeah, yeah, fucking do it, fucking do it, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you see those films where you get someone's here, put a cigarette out of me, fucking do it, um, but I think that, you know, given the preferential nature of you know the Northern Irish accents to access to both the single market. And the British market, which I get why for a lot of Remainers, it's going to be annoying to hear that touted as a benefit. I mean, amazed that Rishi Sunak has been saying it as much as he has. But that, for a lot of people in Northern Ireland, going, that's not a terrible position to be in. And then, you know, with what's happened with the SNP, maybe for the first time in a long time, both the idea of Scotland leaving the UK and, you know, Irish reunification, just they feel at this point in time a bit more distant um, than they have for a while. What most people think. Okay, let's get into a chat with the, the fascinating and brilliant Darren McGarvey. So, I am delighted to welcome to What Most People Think, um, rapper, activist, writer, Darren McGarvey. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm good, mate. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. Obviously, there's that thing where you have to describe pe who people are. I've got to say, Darren, and he's this, and he's that, and he's... And what do you see yourself as now? I mean, at my, at deep, deep down, I'm probably more of a kind of artist, musician type, you know? Yeah. Like, it was really hip-hop and rap that was a big passion for me in the early days. And it, to be honest, that only, that only came out of the fact that a lot of other opportunities in the arts weren't open to me. You know, mm. I had interest in theatre, I had interest in drama, I used to play musical instruments but it was just the community that I grew up in I was always getting very strong signals from the other boys that mm. uh, 
these things were not permitted activities. So yeah, rap yeah. was a kind of rap was a comfortable place to settle because you're still being creative. It still involves words and writing and performance, but it's also kind of draped in the sort of veil of masculinity, which yes. means you can just about get away with it if you can carry it off successfully. So yeah, you you could do you could do a nice, nice sort of macho rapper. You just drop into the middle of a couplet. About your lack of self-esteem and just yeah, you, yeah, just yeah, just, totally. just just <laughs> just let it sit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I get in the night terrors, but move on quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag mental health. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's funny at the moment, isn't it? Like with with, with mental health and, and blokes, is that it's that thing where I wonder how much how meaningful our chats about it can be because you sort of acknowledging something isn't necessarily the same as dealing with it so you just go mental health hashtag mental you know mental health but but what does it really mean to actually take it on is it is it just therapy or you know what what blow what a blow's got to do to make their mental health better yeah i mean everyone is different we deal with different things and, and half the time i think excluding um you know kind of clinical mental health problems which are, are, are not my specialism but mm. just the the kind of the, the, the sort of feeling of depression or anxiety that can occur from um, just being in your head too much. So I think yeah. a lot of the time we are kind of running this conversation within ourselves. And what I find is, particularly with my recovery and having to manage that, the big red flag that I have to watch for is when I forget that that's happening. So I'm just in my head all the time. There's no mm. awareness of of the mind, there's no awareness of thought and how you can get lost in it. And and so for me, signs that I'm not doing well mentally is that uh, increasingly I become kind of impatient, agitated. Yeah. I start getting annoyed by everything. You know, you're scrolling through Facebook and you're just like, fuck yeah, off, yeah. fuck off, fuck off. Yeah. And, 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 and then, um, you know, f- finding that I'm just kind of withdrawing a bit more. Now, I don't mm. use alcohol or drugs or anything like that. A lot of other people, they can kind of unwind or maybe open up a bit when they've had a few. Yeah. Um, but for me, I need to be a little bit more um, a little bit more vigilant because I don't yeah. have the luxury of being able to unwind with a pint or whatever. So it's really just, it's, it's really just um, people have to kind of find the context to share what's going on because I think sometimes putting it all out on Facebook or doing some Instagram story about it well I might be cathartic in the moment yeah you need guidance you need guidance to make sense of what's going on before you decide what it's about you know yeah yeah no it's sort of it's that thing of maybe being like a news anchor of talking about your own life so that's what I sometimes get the impression when I see people who are on social media talking through their latest mental health episode i always feel like mental health is something that you write a summary of afterwards i don't think you necessarily because i don't even know if you know what the fuck it is when, when it when it's happening yeah and, and one of the problems as well is that there's a social media culture which invites us to offer up intimate details of what's going on with us before there's been any real investigation into what is actually mm. happening in our lives. And because of, of lived experience almost within itself being this protected characteristic, then it's like you become you become kind of free from any sort of criticism or any sort of probing from anyone around you if yeah. you really strongly identify with your own mental health, what it is, what it means, where it comes from. 
and and so it can sometimes become a way of overcomplicating the situation. I mean, I even look back at my own life, and maybe ten years ago, my whole understanding of my childhood was was quite different from what it is now. With another mm. ten years of emotional growth and experience, and so I think when you when you announce big pronouncements on social media about the nature of your mental health, what you're going to do. Um, you, you, you can you can potentially box yourself in because it becomes so bound up within your sense of identity yeah. that it can be hard to let go and say actually you know what maybe maybe my mental health problem is because I've been smoking too much ganja maybe my mm. mental health problems because I don't go outside uh, maybe I need a shower you know these are all things that I've needed to to be honest with myself about there was a point in my addiction where I would have preferred to have been told that I was borderline schizophrenic by a doctor mm. than for someone just to say listen pal we can't assess your mental health until you stop drinking every day and so yeah I suppose I mean medicalizing it and that's one thing I'm always struggling with in terms of the modern analysis of mental health whether they're they're, they're kind of um giving you a a prognosis for the symptoms rather than the cause so they're saying well this is this is how you are and, and people seem to be relieved by that and I don't know if that's, I just still don't know if that's a healthy thing or if it just abdicates a degree of responsibility for making it better. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's part of the kind of Western medicine culture, really, isn't it? Because it's like get patched up and get back to work. And obviously being productive is a big part of how we derive a sense of well-being and purpose. So I'm not knocking getting back on the horse and getting out there and doing stuff and making your money or whatever. But at the same time, there are obvious issues around... Um, you know, communities, how connected we are to each other. I mean, for, for for most of our history as a species, we've lived in tribes in very small-scale communities. Mm. We knew everyone, everyone knew us, knew our families. Our, our, our kind of social uh, software is all designed to, to understand everything at that small scale. Yeah, so yeah. then you, you take that software and roll it into social media where everything's happening at once. We've still got those instincts to try and make the same sense of things that we do at a tribal scale, but our software doesn't work. So we get confused, we get disconnected. And then when mm. you throw in the fact that, you know, that the, the, the massive burden that's on a lot of people to be working all the time to make enough to earn means they become disconnected from their children, disconnected from their partners. And I think this does all pay a mental health cost, ultimately, that, mm. that the doctors aren't really trained and don't really have the time. To, to, to look at so it's easier sometimes to say you know take these tablets or whatever and I'm talking uh, medication and I know people get very kind of it's a personal journey for everyone but for me the, and I'm just saying this is a personal thing when I discovered that alcohol and drugs was the problem for me and mm. what I was hiding from with them then when I took them out of the equation I was able to actually look at myself and think, right, what other things are the issue here? What is it about how I react to life? What is it about my expectations of other people that I'm setting myself up to be on a downer all the time? And so that's just a work in progress day by day. I mean, it's interesting. It made, made me smile when you just said about having a shower and stuff. I remember when I was like, like my, my, my wife, there was a period I had in about 2010 where she was just like, go out for a walk in the morning, like get up at a normal time. And th these do end up sounding like quite small C conservative bits of advice. Get up, fucking get dressed. You do realise that the old things about, I think comedians in particular, and you're a performer yourself, you sort of go, well, I finished the gig, I stay up till two or three watching box sets and that. And particularly in the winter, you rise at about midday. 
it's going to have its like effects, right? It, you're good. You're not going to feel like a part of society. No, it's, I think for most people, I think some folk are kind of just inclined to um, to sleep, go to sleep later, and be a bit groggier in the morning. I mean, my wife is certainly a night owl, whereas I'm an mm. early riser. In fact, there's lots of areas of our, our our personalities and preferences which are kind of antithetical to each other, but it yeah. provides great balance for our children. And children actually, they're the thing that really regulate how your day goes, because yeah, yeah. Um, it seems to be that a day like today, where the teachers are on strike, solidarity with the strikers and all that, um, and so my son is off school, and this is technically a day where he has a kind of mandate to lie in, but on a day like today, rather than being hard to wake from his bed because he's got school, he's up at mm. half past six, you know. Uh, ah, the dawn, break, the dawn breaketh, you know, and he's up and he's got the telly on dead loud. And so when you have children or maybe even people who have a dog that needs to get a walk or whatever, um, that kind of regulates how your day goes because then you start realising, I need to have had enough sleep before I'm abruptly awakened by a child. And yeah, so yeah, my, yeah. my solution often is, and it's part of recovery as well, and I don't always nail it the way that I should, but I try to get up before anyone else in the house is up because I need yeah. about half an hour to just get my faculty straight before I have to be confronted with another person's needs or personality or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or, or in the case of if you've got a son and, and knee dropping the bollocks while you're still sleeping. Yeah, yeah. Well, the kids, they used to just come and they would just stand beside the bed and stare at you, which is creepy. <laughs> about old enough to go downstairs and kind of mess about on a tablet and try other hand at pouring their own cereal or whatever. Yeah. But with children and any parent will tell you, it's like, uh, you know, every solution creates a new problem. Um, so you get, you deal with one issue and then yeah. you're dealing, dealing with the next issue. But nothing regulates you like having that level of ability to kids. They stare, they, they're a belief that they can stare you into wakefulness. That is, that is, <laughs> That is a, a very, but they can as well. You just become dimly aware in that morning sort of haze between sleep and wakefulness. You go, someone's fucking staring at me. I think maybe sometimes I, I'm, I'm not necessarily like when I talk about family and kids and responsibility, I might sound like it's quite, um, it's a lot for me or that I'm agitated by it. But it's just, I don't believe that love is this warm, positive feeling. I don't feel like I need to be constantly conveying publicly that I just have this endless love for my children and that I'm just a super parent. Yeah. I think love is behaviour. Love is consistency. Love mm -hmm. is doing the things that need to be done even when you don't want to do them. And in that respect, I'm always there. Um, so sometimes if they're standing next, if they're standing staring at me or the four-year-olds come, she's starting trying to make an incursion into my bed now during the night. Yeah. And uh, I can't sleep when the kids are around. If they're sick, fine, bring yeah. them in. If they have a bad dream, bring them in. But the minute that they start trying to do a new routine, they'll stick to trying to do that until you put them back onto their routine. And you've got to weigh it up because on one hand, yeah, the kid likes to come in and get a cuddle. But mm. on the other hand, I'm so tuned into the frequency of the kids. I can't sleep if they make the slightest little noise, the slightest yeah, little joke. Yeah. It's just like Papa Bear is just up like, what the fuck is going on? And yeah. so it's just like sometimes I'm like, sorry, darling, up you get, back to your fucking bed, your nightlight, and just 
get out of my face. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that is a thing with, with modern parenting. And this is one of these issues, I suppose, where the right, in inverted commas, has sort of sought to own ideas like this, like consistent parenting. But it isn't intrinsically left or right. But you think like, like yeah, like um, dependability in terms of your, your behaviours and also doing... Being a parent, and, and this is what appeals to me, I suppose, politically about some aspects of the right, which is doing the hard thing to do, make make it better in, in the long run. So, it, of course, you always want to give your kid the nice sweet. And if it makes them happy to play uh, like a phone out loud on public transport, you love them. You don't give a fuck about the other people on the carriage. But I, I don't know if it's if it's a reactionary in me or if we're seeing more indulgent parenting now. Is, is, that, is that something you sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I'm part of, uh, certainly up in Scotland, um, part of a kind of, 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 of movement of voices, activists and people with lived experience, which is all around this concept of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Mm. So it's kind of looking at how early years trauma impacts children, how this impacts all of their outcomes as they go through their lives in terms of their health and education and all of that sort of stuff. So the basic premise is when you see someone begging on the street who's homeless, the chances are earlier in their life they've experienced a certain multiple neglects that have left them kind of uh, lacking resilience in the face of life, right? Now, I think that scientifically that's a sound theory, and I think there's lots of bases for communicating that up the structure in terms of how we assign certain resources to public services. But it also comes with a very kind of molly-coddly, wrapping Mm. everyone in cotton wool, uh, you know, everyone talking like those crazy American psychotherapists and, you know, kids that are just being absolute arseholes, being kind of mm. worshipped for and respected for just being alive. And I'm not with that <laughs> at all. I'm not with that at all, you know, because I think like, um, I, I think people who, who think that they need to have a deep discourse with a four-year-old who's having a tantrum and Asda um, at like nine o'clock at night, I think what they're doing is um, partly is is that they're, they're performing in the aisle for the other people who are watching them parenting. 100%, yeah, yeah. It's a performance there, just like when we're taking pictures of our kids at the park and we're like, look at me on Instagram, super dad, here I am. And then, yeah, it's a nice wee moment, but it might have been nicer with it being interrupted by a camera pose. And yeah. so, actually, for, for me, it's like, you've got to get the balance right because you can be overindulgent and all the kid will do was will continually try to extend their will and their authority over the situation. And you see this when children come home from their grandparents where the regime is a bit more relaxed. So the kids come back and suddenly they're like, Nana gives us supper. You know what I mean? Like, they want, suddenly they want like a bowl of porridge before they go to their bed and all <laughs> I mean the thing the thing that you say with with grandparents is it's so incredible isn't it because they sort of like they coded you with an idea of how your your young life as a child should be and then liberated from the day-to-day evidence of breaking those rules they fucking just go completely the other way. I mean, I speak to all my friends. It, it, it is the same. And then I guess our generation, we're all thinking, when I get to a grandparent, I'm going to respect them. But there must be something about the genetic process of becoming a grandparent thinks, fuck that. Fuck yeah. that. I'm giving them jammy dodges at midnight. I don't give a yeah. shit. Yeah, and, and like like you said earlier on, sometimes there are kind of shortcuts that you need to take 
or you know you'll just be like fuck it suddenly then you're in a McDonald's car park at some ungodly hour and you're just hmm. submitted to the fact that you need to feed the kids and everyone needs to eat and you just have to do the easy thing but what, when I start to get stressed as a parent is when um, I'm noticing that because of decisions me and the mother are making about our schedules about the things that we say yes to then it's starting to impact what time the kids go to bed how long mm. they sleep for. I start noticing a lot of the little disturbances that happen, the changes in their behaviour. And my wife's a lot mm. more relaxed about that and credit to her. Um, but m- myself, really important. I think it's partly because I know what an, what an absolute mess my own childhood was at points. So I think sometimes I'm overcorrecting because I carry a lot of shame. If I see my kid come in with dirt under their nails, you know, it's like, fucking come here, Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Get the nails stopped. I'm imagining some social workers coming through the door, um, or, or, or you know, anything at all. If their hair's a mess or anything like that, it's almost as if I'm kind of, I'm, I'm trying to prove to some kind of all seeing eye that I'm not going to yeah, let. Yeah, yeah. You're down. on a slippery slope. This is how it starts. You're on a slippery slope. So there's a there's there's a clarity in a way that you talk about things that, that dovetails with class. I mean, I read your book Poverty Safari, which is absolutely superb. You got another book out uh, uh, more recently, which we'll talk about. But it, one thing that I suppose where everybody could read it and enjoy it was that you don't speak about class with this sort of pitying way. You you identify the, these kind of structural problems, but. There's never sort of like I never got the sense of the tiny violin. Violin. I never. I never heard the tiny violin come out. And is is that something that you're conscious of, or is that just that it comes from your personality? It's partly because of how I was raised. So we we I was raised in a strange time and and the community that I grew up in the south side of Glasgow, where it was really the kind of height of the deindustrial dereliction. You know that that kind of mm. image that a lot of people have of the eighties and nineties. So Pollock was like that. It was very violent. There weren't a lot of opportunities. It was very run down. So the the community had this negative story that it was telling itself and almost taking Mm. pride in how rough it was, how hard it was. And uh, I was maybe like only five, six years old. And then this started to change because there was a period of, of militancy. It was called militancy, but really it was a community saying, fuck this, we need to do something about this. So the community started getting organised around issues like poll tax or, or water charges or motorways being built through public land. And while on the surface these were political acts, what they were actually doing was giving the community a new centre. So people were starting to get socially bonded around ideas bigger than themselves. And this is a brilliant recipe for change. It's a brilliant recipe for well-being, connectedness. All of the things that a community requires, irrespective of how wealthy or poor they are, to function Mm. properly. And so I came up in a time where we were very much taught, if you have a problem with something, if you think something is unjust, you have a responsibility to step up and use your voice or some other means to to bring about better circumstances. So this involved local activists occupying community centres, uh, involved them creating networks where if one person was getting a sheriff's officer round to the house to take their stuff for a warrant sale, other people would turn up and flank them so that nobody could enter the premises. And then he, he even came to the point where there were there were activists who were facing down some of the more um, gangster elements in the community as well and saying, listen, mm. you guys are part of the problem as well, so you want to go over there and do your thing. 
but don't come over here and try and fuck with what we're doing because we see that what you're offering this community is no better than what the Tories are offering it. And so it was a period of confidence, not just in the fact that change could happen, but people started to develop a confidence that their assessment of the situation was correct, that their judgment about what to do was correct. And while in the long run, it's hard to always win those battles, um, these are pivotal moments in our communities develop because a new history and a new story is told and then that starts getting told. And that means that it, it wipes away the negative story, the defeatist, the toxic fatalism that sometimes a lot mm. of the communities that we grow up in are, are prey to. How much did things change um, with politically in terms of how someone like you who's of the left, but then... As Labour underwent that change at uh, the back end of the new a Labour administration and, and just didn't seem, you know, there were less working Labour MPs who came from actual working class communities. You know, you had all these these sort of um, highly rated Labour talents that were dropped into kind of uh, constituencies, constituencies, particularly in the northeast of England, it seems. Was that like an awake? Did that change how you felt about like, you know, the, the left as a concept? Well, I mean, when New Labour came in, I was in second year at school, so I was um, I was more I was more immersed in the conditions of the community, and I hadn't yet started to make the connection between um, who's in power and how how that transpires locally. But what I did mm. notice, and I, I, it's a controversial thing to acknowledge or, or, on the left, the further out the left that you go. Um, but I remember the material conditions of the community improving quite drastically um, when Blair got into power. And, and there was a few reasons for it. One was just the kind of optimism that it comes when a new, when an old, tired, corrupt government is just swept away. And so part of it was just the public relations, which they were really good at, creating a sense that anything was possible while having the same economic doctrine, ultimately. But what we did, what we did see was... Um, we all got double glazing windows fitted. We got fences erected out in our back gardens to stop the burglars. We all got central heating fitted in our homes. Now, you ask any working class person um, the sort of things that make their lives bearable, and they won't even mention these things now because these things are a given. But when mm. I was young, these things weren't a given. Your windows were frosted. If you so much as leaned on the window, you would fall out of it. And yeah. it was a kind of cold experience in the winter, you know, everyone racing down to get yeah, to the yeah. fire and all of that. So these things were really important and really kind of mm. massive. And so sometimes when, when the story is told about Blair or New Labour and this idea that nothing changed, I kind of have an issue with that because I remember that things changed. Surely the issue is how was it funded? How, what was the economics underpinning it? How much were private enterprises involved in that as the ultimate public cost to the taxpayer? Fair enough, let's debate that. But don't say that it was just a straight line from Thatcherism through Blairism, because it just wasn't. No, um, no, the so early, the early, it did feel like, yeah, the, the early years, there were things there were things happening. And then it, it I think that social mobility sort of started to go down towards the back end of, of New Labour. And then there was this period, I guess, where the brand sort of post-2010, it was the first time when, I get for me, it really felt like the Labour Party had become a sort of victim brand. You know, if you just broadly characterise the two parties, you go like, if you, you know, Tories about, do, you know, can be a bit 
selfish and cruel, but on the other hand, about doing all right for yourself, you know. And then Labour started to become a sort of victim brand. And I always wonder why that was. Is it because like like those kind of working class things that you talk about suddenly became not sexy or not sexy to those people? What Labour was really successful about and continuing Thatcherism and all but name was the eradication of class as a concept from public discourse. Even just the words around mm. class, working class, uh, the words around industrial relations, all of that lexicon all got washed out. So social mobility is one of those phrases that was brought in to kind of sanitise the language because the language of class is really evocative. You know, when, when you start to kind of look at society, and I know there are people out there who recognise the difference in cultures in terms of social classes perhaps more than they would recognise that more Marxist economic analysis. But any, anyone who's travelled around the country, anyone who has spent some time with people of a different social class, they can feel it, they can feel the difference. Different things are funny, different experiences are normal. If you spend too much time around people who don't come from your background, you either have to switch up how you come across or you have to suffer this kind of fish out of water feeling. But what happened with Blair was because that language was sanitised and toned down because it was too evocative, then working class people uh, lost the ability to describe their own experiences. They lost the agency to say, no, it's definitely this that's happening in my area. And so mm. there's a kind of, it's it, it's weird. To, you have two different concepts of class. One is the old concept. One is this new labour sanitised one. And then really in that, all it means is in a community is about who holds the power and their, their way of talking about it goes. And I think one of the big successes of Blairism was he got a lot of middle-class do-gooders on board despite not being economically that different from Thatcher because he sanitised the language. And some people, they'll, they'll, they'll swallow any old shite for just a stable house price and a, and a quiet two-driveway life. And that's how we got into a situation. I know it's a long answer, but that's how we got into a situation where you get you, you began to see the kind of middle class paternalism, where in every community, wherever there are resources, there is a middle class person deciding how they're distributed and how the people should behave if they want a cut of that pie. There was a point with Brexit where when a lot of working class people didn't vote how they were supposed to, and then we heard a lot of opinions of working class people come out. Uh which we didn't expect to a point. And I suppose, you know, I mean, that, that's an interesting point to start. I mean, how did you feel? I mean, I, I don't know how you voted in terms of leave or remain, but how, were you conscious of that happening where it sort of lanced this boil and there were things said about working class people in the immediate aftermath of the vote that were, were illuminating? Oh, yes, because I think there were middle class people who had been used to having the entire political discourse shaped with them in mind. So every politician who wanted to become prime minister, the first thing they had to do was guarantee the interests and aspirations of that electorally lucrative middle-class voter who can swing between Tory and Labour without any real ideological problems, you know? Mm. And, and so when, when you've become accustomed to your interests always being looked after, irrespective of if you're out in the street campaigning, uh, and then suddenly um, the, the the country votes in a way that is not in line with your interest, then that is very traumatising if you've not actually experienced it. 
And so what we're perceiving in your kind of classic Remainer discourse is at first the, the kind of just the absolute shock and the dismay, and then that is followed by contempt and anger. And 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 what, what ends up being vomited up is all the real class prejudice a lot of people truly did feel. Hmm. Now, I, I, I remember this, it was around this time as well, because it was kind of early to mid-2000s where a lot of the so-called identity politics started to erupt through Facebook into the mainstream. So we started hearing more about these concepts that were unusual, like trigger warnings and safe spaces. Hmm. This was the kind of first phase, really, of, of, of identity politics. And it became so entwined with Brexit that really you had you just had you had really open class cultural warfare going on. Well, these issues became kind of proxies for really long-standing resentments about the condition of the country, the direction of the country, the power imbalances. And I think now politicians have learned how to play that a bit better. Uh, but there was a real period around Brexit in the just mid two thousand mid two thousand and tens generally where it was really chaotic and no one mm. really understood these new forces that were coming into play. And I certainly remember my community, it seemed like one day you had a bunch of people who previously would have all been in the same room campaigning for Scottish independence, and then the next day would be scared to put them in a room with each other in case they tear each yeah, other's yeah. throats out, you know? And it was just like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, no, it, it, I suppose it was a, a new binary line. I mean, my... The reason is, is that we we probably share a little bit of like a class chip on our shoulder in a way about the middle classes. It's, it's, it's weird because sometimes people say to me, why why don't you go like for like really, really rich people? And I sort of think, well, because to me, everything that's negative about them is, is there and, and it, up front. Whereas I just felt in some cases with there was a kind of urban sort of liberal metropolitan person that, that sort of identified one way but I didn't know if they always walked the walk in terms of their principles. I'll give you a good example. So assortative mating. I mean, you're aware of this concept whereby, you know, how people tend to end up in partnerships and, and marriages. So is it incredible that recently people are marrying outside of their class less, right? So if, if you really wanted to sort of spread wealth, like one of the, the most transformative and immediate ways you could do that is, is not marry someone that basically comes from a similar background to you. I mean, is that a concept you come across, assortative mating? Is it something yeah, you have views yeah. on? Um, and you can also call it interclass marriage, and it sounds a bit less kind of scientific. But the... the um, that's one. That was one of the key metrics that drove social mobility in the post-war period, where mm. there was consensus about the need for more state intervention in terms of the economy and health and public services. And so, and interclass marriage, uh, along with things like a, a kind of drop in infant mortality, greater social mobility, um, more working-class people succeeding in education, less health inequalities. Though there was a post-war period where well, these metrics were all flashing green, which is where you really want them. And uh, and and so when you talk about assortative mating or interclass marriage now going into decline, that's a sign of, of a regression um, socially and economically because people are staying in their silos socially. And what this leads to as well is obviously the, the, the issues that you talk about in terms of, of wealth, generational wealth, household prosperity and all of that is... Culturally, it's like pulling up the drawbridges. So mm. less and less we are exposed to different ways of looking at things. 
different ways of seeing things. Because that's certainly there were things about a kind of stereotypical middle class lifestyle that I would used to poke fun at or so as pretentious and posh. And then when it came time for me to try and address my lifestyle and my health and my diet, then these were things that suddenly I was turning to because these are better ways of organizing your life. And 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 it was only because oh, you mean I, like 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 um like like sorting out nutrition and and being like yeah, in the like, gym like, and fucking Pilates and all this bollocks. Yeah, like like knowing like like accepting that Lucasade is not a sports drink, right? <laughs> like you know basic stuff in a working class community where like your granny is getting six bottles of pop off a van every four days, and yeah. just butter with a spoon and carnation milk out the tin. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to grow up with type 1 diabetes and have to get a leg amputated and just have a heart attack on the operating table. But actually, <laughs> when it came time to sort of sorting my shit out, I started finding a lot of these kind of um, foods and, and and ways of doing things and structuring your life that I normally associated with middle class. I found actually were just healthier. And actually that, mm. that was partly why middle class people were healthier and why they lived longer. And the only one I've not been able to crack is stopping smoking and because that is very difficult. But one of the reasons that I was able to adopt those lifestyle changes was because I had been exposed to people who came from the other side of the tracks. Mm. And so mm. I seen a different way. I had a powerful example of different ways of doing things. But if I hadn't had that opportunity, I wouldn't know any better. I'd be sitting here just now in a sugar crash with the look head and four teeth in the top of my mouth and you know I wouldn't yeah. know any better, and that's one of the big problems when you don't have interclass connection because we just uh, we, we, it narrows all of our horizons, including middle class people. I I mean. One thing I wonder about middle class now is that there was a period where we've had where middle class sort of left wing politics seemed to be on identity grounds, but and I sort of felt that there was a sort of schism between sort of the working class left and the middle class left. Now, however. You know, they, they've got their own cost of living crisis, right? So, you know, they probably regretted getting a tiling with heated floors and that sort of shit, you know what I mean? But they're also, it's, the, the jobs that they've got pay less than they do, harder for their kids to get on the housing ladder. They've also, you know, they've grown up in nice households, but they're finding that their sons are angry and that they're listening to Andrew Tate. Is there a degree to which that schism, and this is me just trying to be fairer, you know, not just dig on them, that that schism that opened up might, close up again, but simply because they've got some of the same economic worries. Yes, one thing that does as well is it legitimises discussion about the dysfunctional economy as a reality rather than poverty or an inability to make your paycheck last the whole month. There's just been evidence of a moral failing or poor lifestyle, mm. fecklessness. And I know that that is the case for some people of all classes, but generally there is an issue when you're doing all the things you've been told you need to do to have a good life and you can't actually cover your outgoings. The other thing is that there are a lot of people in this country who bought into the image of themselves as middle class but didn't realise a lot of it was contingent on debt, which is contingent on interest rates, mm. which is contingent on so many geopolitical things that is beyond any family or individual politician's control. And so when you have a big rupture in the economy or you have a combination of ruptures such as we see, in Britain, middle-class people who aren't necessarily as middle-class as they like to think they are become overexposed, um, over-leveraged, and suddenly they start to realise that while they thought they were kind of out of the quicksand, 
Uh, in reality, they're living beyond their means, just like anybody else. They're living in poverty, as they're just experiencing a form of relative poverty. And and that's when you start to sort of realise um, there are so many uh, delusions that have been running for such a long time in British discourse, uh, whether it's related to certain social issues, health issues, economic facts of reality. And, and I think there's a kind of chickens coming home to roost at the moment with lots of different, disparate, uh, kind of seemingly unrelated issues where the lies are starting to reveal themselves and people either have to accept that there has been a lot of delusion uh, in our discourse recently or they're going to have to burrow deeper into the fantasy, um, especially in Scotland right now. I mean, this leadership debate that's going on with the Scottish mm. National Party, it's just a farce. It's a farce that bears no relation to reality. They're talking about someone's beliefs about same-sex marriage, which is a right that's been in the bag and isn't under threat in any way, shape or mm. form from any politician in Scotland for the last 10 years. But Kate Forbes keeps getting asked about it over and over and over again. So all the other leaders have to respond to it. And then they've been asked, what do they think of this person's mm. pronouns? And without going into those issues themselves, because uh, I don't want to scandalise myself by speaking too publicly about things. There is mm. there is a disproportionate amount of time focused on issues which I'm not saying aren't important, but there has to be an equal spread of discussion at the political level. Okay, just interrupting the chat there with the uh, just compelling Darren McGarvey there. Lo- love speaking to him. Um, it's just a thing about the tour, okay? Now, it's selling well, but I know that there's some of you sitting there right now that want to buy tickets and actually intend to buy tickets, but you just haven't done it yet, and there's not actually a good reason for it. So I'm speaking to you, okay? Right now, you know the date it is, you know how many tickets you want, what, why haven't you done it? Hey, well, you wait, is this, is, this, is this something you need to speak to your counsellor about? Is this the procrastination issues that you suffer from? Because what I don't want, right, is loads of people that suddenly when, because a few of them will start selling out soon, is they're going, oh, just at me going, oh, dude, tickets sold out. What the fuck are you going to add another one? That's what they often say, right? So, you know, for someone at my level, I do all right, but, you know, it takes a bit of going to sell these shows out. And then when it sells out, they go, are you going to do another one? Yeah, yeah, let's let's just put in another tour show for fucking Disorganised Dave. (laughs) Let's do the disorganised Dave show. I'll just come back to that place because fucking Dave couldn't put his finger, pull his finger out. So there you go. The, the tour dates are there. Um, there are a few in particular that are getting close to selling out. So I'm just saying, if you know which one you're coming to and you're definitely going to come and you want to come, then just do it now. All right, let's get back to the chat with Darren McGarvey. Is, is there a degree with the SNP where obviously they've dined out to a large extent on being the, the only, well, the, the main pro-independence party in town? Are they running out of road a bit in terms of what that affords them in, in terms of their own governance? Or, or, is, or, or are we down south, as some of people like me, am I getting overexcited about the idea that there might be a sort of rebalancing in Scotland? Is, is the SNP support more ingrained than we think? The SNP has been using the performance-enhancing drug of dangling the carrot of Scottish independence for a long time. Mm. And now anyone who even understands fitness, even in a cursory way, will know 
that every single gain that you make while using a performance-enhancing drug will be wiped out the minute that you stop using the performance-enhancing drug. So the SMP has to keep injecting itself with these 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 things that that that, that are going to inflate the level of support that it has. And now there's a real fear, I think, of underemphasizing independence because there'll be an immediate electoral cost. And it won't just it won't necessarily be a cost to the independence cause. It means that it'll create a situation where another pro-independence party or figure or movement right. or something can start to move into that vacuum and say, the SNP is not good enough to do this. We can do this. And so when people have enjoyed power for so long and all the trappings of it, it's very counterintuitive, isn't it, to, to not keep on trying to do the same thing that keeps returning mm. you to power. I mean, I'm pro-independence. I've never made any secret about it. But what they've done with the independence cause is they've took it from the people. It's become absorbed into the party infrastructure, institutionalised. And so now everybody's waiting for the SNP to decide on the process of independence rather than just getting out there and fighting for it and making sure people understand why it is an important thing, if that is what you think. So it's just, it's a lot of people in England, they look up here and they think, uh, you know, well, the Scottish government standing up for the people and standing up to Westminster. And no, most governments are going to look good. I mean, fucking Mugabe would have looked good contrasted with these Tories at one point. But at the end of the day, it's just the same fucking games that's going on up here and it's really frustrating when you've got a front row seat. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like like some similar things have happened for to the Tories and the SNP, but for very different reasons. I mean, even, even you look at the, the rate of scandals, like there is definitely something about being in power long enough. Yeah. If you just hang around long enough, you just sort of forget the privileges and you forget that, that shit comes out. I mean, one thing, I mean, just moving on to your more recent book, um, The Social Distance Between Us, um, a more like hard P politically sort of driven book i mean i haven't had a chance to read the book yet but i was just sort of like uh, having a skim and, and this thing about private schools i know that you are strongly in favor of, of abolishing private schools i suppose the, the question i i find it tricky because i'm like spent my whole life taking the kind of piss out of the kind of people that go to private schools wouldn't send my son to one but have this ideological thing like we shouldn't prohibit that from happening in society but one of the pragmatic concerns i have about it is what happens to comprehensive education if you do because we know what the sharp elbowed sort of wing of the middle classes can be like my wonder is the way that the system's already gamed now what would start happening if you took private schools out of the equation in terms of them sort of snaffling up all the good schools yeah well this is one of the things that parents who do send their kids to private schools will say they'll argue um, well, I mean, I've got the money to give my kids an advantage irrespective of whether they go to mm. private school or not. And that basically is an argument for abolishing them because what they're really saying is we don't need them. And then so the, the, the retort to that is if you do, uh, kids, are, kids are often sent to private school because the, the parents want to give them the best opportunity. And then when the kids do well, they, they say it's because of the kids' inherent ability. That's why they've succeeded, not because they've had a hand up. When the reality is, if those parents really did believe in the merit of their children, why are they taking out a mortgage to insulate them from competition from all the other social classes? Because when you buy your kid a place in a private school, you're not just buying them an education of a high quality. You're giving them access to networks professionally, socially, culturally, mm. that are going to grant them a special kind of weightlessness in the world of public services, business, culture, that the other kids don't get the opportunity to even try out. So we have in Britain a meritocracy where 
we think the person in the top job is the best person for the job, but then we don't make a correlation between how shit everything is and who always has the top job in every every area. And and so for me, it's not necessarily, I'm not one of these people that envy people who've done well financially or envy people who are well educated. It's it's not that at all. And I've visited many private schools and, 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 I, and I think there are a lot of brilliant educational practices and cultures and conventions that we can learn from how things are in mm. those institutions. But ultimately, we need to flip the conversation from one about a free market where you should be able to send your kid anywhere you want and start looking at private education, particularly these elite colleges that produce most of the prime ministers. We need to see them more like a national security threat. You know what I mean? Because because the people who go from those colleges to Downing Street, they're presiding over a country that's continually getting worse. And so when you start making that link between those schools, that level of privilege and the material conditions of a country in decline, you surely have to say, maybe we need to curtail access to these schools. Maybe there's something about what they're being taught about the country, about their entitlement that's not good for everyone else in the country. And that's really the argument, you know, it's not about curtailing people's advantages. That, that I suppose, is it comes down to the principle at its heart of, as you know, if you, if you accept it's okay for people pursuing accrued wealth, is to what degree can you deploy that wealth to improve your situation, right? So, like, private schools are quite a big example of that, but they're all, they also exist on a spectrum where you go, if you make that incursion into society, like, you, are, you restrict, mm-hmm. that, that's always been my fear. I mean, I went to, I went to um, Alton Towers a couple of years ago with my son, and we paid for the Q-jump thing, and it was that, it was just a metaphor, really, for these things, of one... It was fucking expensive, but it was worth it at the same time. The thing is, a middle-class person wouldn't do that. A middle-class person wouldn't do that. That's a working-class person thing. A working-class person with more money is just like, fuck that, fuck the... Well, it wants to feel like, wants to feel like a king for a day. But also, also, Darren, the guilt I felt as well. So I felt this guilt about this just, just feels this feels a bit wrong. But then, when it turned out that it didn't get us right to the front of the queue... Mm. I was then really, I then flipped back to being really fucking annoyed. Yeah. Was like, well, hang on, I paid this money. I want to get ahead of all these people. So I think that my, my, there's always, for me, there's this kind of duality that's constantly, and maybe that's why I'm a comedian more than anything else, because that is what, that's where the funny thing is. It's, it's the same as hotels as well. I've got this, I never buy nice cars, all my cars have been shit, but I love going to expensive hotels because there's a part of me that just goes, fucking that my money is as good as the next man no one's doubting it no one's questioning me going oh, i can stay at this fucking gaff if i want yeah, and literally yeah. going yeah we know no I mean, honestly <laughs> there's been times in my life where i think i've bought something or paid for something just to prove that i could afford it even if i could <laughs> even if i couldn't afford it <laughs> so like i'm totally i'm totally with you on the hotels thing and i've had like know my wife who actually has a bit more middle class in her than I do, and will be in one mm. of these, you know, plusher hotels, and you can really tell it's plush when you go down for the dinner or you go down for the breakfast, and you're surrounded by the other people who are staying there, and you get that yeah. fish out of water feeling. And my wife, she'll be maybe a bit hungover if she's had a few the night before. She'll be feeling a bit self-conscious about what she's wearing or whatever. Whereas there's a part of me that's like swaggering right down to the sausages, you know, just grabbing a load of. With a, a football plate. replica top on. Just <laughs> on the fucking plate, you know what I mean? So definitely, I, I, I can identify with that, man, like when you're working class through and through, but you have a wee bit more cash, 
and so you can buy into these experiences. And with private school, I'm not focusing on the individual parents. It's very natural. And I've said before many mm. times, no, nothing elicits a conservative impulse in you than having your own child that you have to look after yeah, and protect, yeah. right? So I get that. But it's just, you have to weigh up the rights of an individual always with the impact on the community generally. And it's, it's does the private education sector deliver a net benefit to society or is it a net negative? And I think increasingly there's an argument that that level of power and opportunity hoarding at the top is one of the factors that creates a situation where inequality is so rife in, in the UK. Um, in terms of like... I mean, obviously, there's your two books that are out. You you do live shows as well. That's an area where, where where I'm I'm just interested in to what form those kind of take because they do they do very well. I know you had a run at the Edinburgh Fringe and stuff, and you're, you're touring now. So first up, people should if there's any chance to see you live, um, they should check that out. What what sort of creative form do those shows take? Well, really, I actually kind of take it takes the form almost of a stand up show in terms of I go out there with the mic and take the ball for a walk. And there'll be aspects of the show which are more humorous. But because I'm not marketing it as comedy and because I'm not a comedian by trade, I'm not under pressure to deliver a laugh every couple Mm. of minutes. So if it gets a bit more serious or a bit more earnest or a bit more political, the audience don't start thinking that there's a problem and that something... Mate, there's plenty of comedians that take that liberty as well now. I don't need to get a laugh. (laughs) I'll bet, but I really do look to comedians... um, uh, in terms of, because I think I think that the, the the plight of the comedian and the plight of the kind of rap artist are not too dissimilar in lots yeah, of ways. Yeah. You're talking about a show that's got lots of words, a show that relies a lot on memory, but also being able to think off the cuff. Um, and, mm. and a show that ultimately depends on, no matter how you're pitching yourself as a character or a persona or an underdog or whatever, you have to be in total command of what's going on and you're going to lose it. And so, in a sense, I think artistically, I definitely look to comedians um, as inspiration for how to go out there onto a bigger stage and a big room um, and 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 be really aware of how to manipulate the vibe, um, when, when to shut up, when to proceed. Because I think comedians have the sharpest instincts for that sort of stuff as performers just because of the intensity of being the only person that the, the success or failure of the show is depending on, and so the show it has it has a it has a lot of jokes, um, but then that's punctuated with you know observations or a bit of political chat. But I have enjoyed bringing more comedy into what I do, just because um, it's it's something I've always loved. It's I was always inspired by comedians when I was younger. And um, and and I think as I've got older, I've I've started to appreciate more and more what you can do with comedy apart from just being funny. You know what I mean? Like, and every comedian's got their own kind of eye for what it is that they find funny. Mm. And then it's all about how successfully can they kind of can they represent that under pressure consistently. So there's lot there's lots of stuff there for for people who want to come along and not necessarily be exposed to a grim political rally because that's not what. No, I well. That- no, no, that's the thing is you are like of all the people I've had, you are very left wing, you know, in, 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 you know, in terms of hard P politics. But there's never, ever, ever a sense like like it's hectoring or anything like that. And I think that, you know, 
going forward, that's what we need on all sides is people are just able uh, to communicate with that level of clarity. Um, so, yeah, obviously, people should give you a follow on social media. Check out the books and live stuff. And um, Darren McGarvey, thanks so much for appearing on What Most People Think. Cheers, Jeff. Okay, that was the chat with Darren McGarvey there. It was good to see that, you know, there we go. We have different political views, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to hear what he thinks because he communicates in such a way, you know. And I think that... It was interesting to see that we both had that impulse in and around hotels. You know, if you've ever seen me in a hotel, I walk into those receptions. There was a, there was a great Eddie Murphy routine in Delirious, I think, where he talks about being a black man going to Texas and the perception that he had that he wouldn't be welcome there and stuff. So he, so he arrive in the airport and someone would say, excuse me, sir, is that your suitcase? And he'd go, well, yeah, what, a black man can't have a suitcase? Um, well, I'm not equating class uh, as a precise piece of symmetry to race. I would say that there's a degree... Where whenever I'm in a posh hotel where I do think a bit like Eddie Murphy in that, you know, can we take your bag, sir? You, what, you think I shouldn't have a bag like that? I can afford a bit of Sam tonight. Don't you worry about that, mate. <laughs> oh, it's pathetic, isn't it? Um, listen, we don't really have uh, any letters this week. So just a reminder, if there's anything in the show, um, obviously Patreons can get a message to me or you can email what most people think UK at gmail.com. And just to let you know, there are a couple of new benefits now. If you stayed with this right to the end, uh, if you're a board, board member level Patreon, there is a new benefit, which I've just communicated to you. Okay, it's, a, it's another secret one, uh, but it is out in the open now that board members, so this, this is if you upgrade to £20 a month, is that you can have a signed hardback copy of my book, Where Did I Go Right, which I'll send to you. Okay, so the moment you do that, you upgrade, send me your address and a short inscription that you'd like me to write in it, and I'll do that. And VIP patrons, I can happily announce that from now on there's a new benefit, which is that when it's your birthday, if you send me a message, and if I happen to fucking see it, I'll say happy birthday on the podcast, right? There you go. That's all right, isn't it? What? Just a little happy birthday. I mean, obviously, I'm going to fucking take the piss out of you as well. I'm not going to. I'll probably. You'll probably end up regretting it, frankly. Uh, so it won't feel like a benefit at all. Just like the name shout out. So there you go. And remember, all levels of the Patreon. If you if you join up right now, uh, if you at any level, you can watch all my stand up specials for uh, three specials. I think there are on there now. And uh, I don't normally do marketing this heavy near the end. Um, and also, there's a Patreon-only episode. We, oh, fuck. Just realised I didn't do the one for February. All right, I'll do one this Friday. There you go. We did business. Deals getting closed on the golf course. Oh.